Some details in this episode are graphic and may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. It's a case that took many by surprise. The details so horrific and violent. He grabbed some tape and started taping her hands up. He gets some machete. A senseless murder committed because a woman wouldn't stop talking. He was he was telling her that uh, she needed to shut up and just be still for a while. Uh, otherwise, she wouldn't like to know. This is South Texas Crime Stories, the murder of Nicole Perry. On the afternoon of November 19, 2020, Bear County Public Works employee Oscar Flores was asked to go pick up trash that was off South WW White Road. The area was a known dump site and often had trash left there. When he and his coworker arrived, they noticed several bags. While a couple of the bags were easy to pick up, the other two weren't so easy, and one of them ripped open. Here's Oscar Flores speaking about the moment he realized he had made a horrifying discovery. And I noticed hair, long, thin hair, which is usually I would think it was a dead animal, but the hair looked too human to be an animal. Flores said he also noticed a silver necklace sticking out. He immediately called his supervisors who called the Bear County Sheriff's Office. In the first two bags picked up inside were pieces of cloth and napkins with blood on them, kitty litter, and a pair of shoes. On the side of the shoes, Nikki was written on them. Inside the bigger bags were two blue bins, and inside the body of 31-year-old Nicole Perry, also known as Nikki. It would be a few weeks before anybody knew what actually happened to Nikki. New details would come out when a man named Rafael Castillo was arrested in early December, almost a month after Nikki had been found. The affidavit for his arrest revealed disturbing details. Nikki had been brutally attacked and murdered inside a known drug house in the 300 block of West Harlan Avenue on the city's south side. Two witnesses had told police that Rafael had attacked Nikki cutting her hands off with a machete and striking her in the head with an axe. Afterward, he made her boyfriend and another woman clean up. It would be almost two years later that the full story of what happened to Nikki was revealed as Rafael Castillo headed to trial. KSAT viewers, I'm Stefania Jimenez, anchor and reporter at KSAT 12 in San Antonio. On weeknights, you'll catch me on the Night Beat. Many of you want the news before 10 p.m., and this is for you. It's called The Nine at Night, a live nine-minute digital newscast airing at, you guessed it, 9 p.m. Call it a bite-sized show that's tailor-made for you. You'll get the day's top stories, weather, upcoming community events, and feel-good stories. Find us on YouTube, KSAT.com, and KSAT Plus, available on Amazon Fire Stick, Apple TV, Roku, or any way you stream. And, of course, via podcast. So like or subscribe wherever you get your audio. That way you'll get the alert when each episode drops. That starts later this month. Until then, 
Head on over to KSAT.com and sign up to be a KSAT Insider. That's where you'll get the inside scoops on all of our new and exciting projects. That was Prosecutor Jennifer McDaniel in her opening statements during the trial. Now, Lee, this trial lasted about a week, and it's one that I will never forget. Yeah, just hearing some of what came out in court, the graphic, gruesome details, I can only imagine it's something that's going to stick with you. Yeah, it was, you know, I oftentimes say being in court can be hard. There's images one should never have to see, and I felt for those those jury members, because they had to see some really tough images and hear some very hard details on how this woman died, and all because she wouldn't stop talking or she showed a lack of respect. I I just, I I can't wrap my head around that. Someone can say, okay, you know what? You're not going to stop talking. Let me just do this to you. Just, that's a cruel person to also think that they're that entitled, that they have the right then to decide okay, you won't stop talking. I'm going to make you stop talking. And this is how I'm going to do it. That just, that blows my mind. And, you know, this all went to court. So what charges is Castillo facing in this? I know while the trial was going on, we kept getting um, viewers and, and our readers curious why this wasn't a death penalty trial. And as, as, as it was explained to me, he was charged with first degree murder because there was not another crime committed in the act of this murder. Usually when it's a capital murder case, there is maybe an aggravated robbery. Um, There's multiple people that have been killed or it's a death of a police officer. There's other circumstances, but this wasn't one of them. And as I was explained by one of the local judges here is that no matter how horrific the details are, we can't change the law. That is the law it was just first-degree murder, which also led to a whole other thing. He was out on bond. Castillo was out on bond the entire time leading up to his trial. His bond was set at $500,000, which means he was able to make a $50,000 bond. It was a little nerve-wracking. I'm going to say, you hear these details, and you're like, why is this man just walking around? Yeah, that's not somebody I would want to just happen across at the grocery store walking my dog out in the park alone. I just, that's not someone I would feel safe with just having out about. Well, he was under house arrest the entire time. He wasn't even allowed to go to church on Sundays. Like he was just allowed to stay in his home. And apparently he followed all the rules during, while he was out on bond before the trial. But there is that, that saying, you know, it's you're innocent until you're proven guilty. And that's what happened here, you know? Right. And I mean, let's also, if we can, obviously you're, you're the expert here. Talk to us about that house where everything went down because the, the details, he made her boyfriend and another woman who were there clean up. I mean, what happened there that led up to all of this? So just a little background on Nikki and, and the prosecutor made it very clear in the beginning. Nikki was no saint. She was a drug user. She um, used methamphetamines, her and her boyfriend. 
And they were living in this house at the time and not really living. They had really just gotten there that day um, after they were evicted from their, their home and were kind of homeless and they called the friend. So this house on Harlan, just to kind of give you a picture, there's a main house and in the back there's like a detached garage that was kind of transformed into like a living space. So the person who lived there along with his girlfriend, Rafael Castillo, who was his cousin, and then there's Nicole Perry and her boyfriend. So there's five people inside this very small area. But this entire house, the detached, people are going and coming all day long. It is a known drug house that was on police's radar. They've you know done bus there before. Multiple people were in and out. So there's a lot going on. And it was extremely messy in the inside of this detached a space. They didn't show pictures of the main house, but of the detached area, I mean, there was trash thrown, there was tools, there was like a motorcycle in the middle of a room. There was a hole in the wall that they kind of made into another like separate little room. I mean, it was it was chaos inside of there. So that kind of just gives you a picture of how they were living, what the circumstances were. And despite that, I think it doesn't matter. No one deserves to be killed or die in that manner. Right, just because you're living, and it's often referred to as like a high-risk lifestyle, doesn't mean you're necessarily deserving of a crime to happen to you. No one is deserving of something like that to happen to them. So just because her way of life was different than what you or I might choose or what our average listener might choose, doesn't mean that she brought this upon herself. Yeah, and, and so one of the main witnesses, because this all took place with those five people pretty much in the room at the same time, if you can imagine that. And one of the main witnesses was, of course, Nikki's boyfriend, Randall Fulgham. And Randall kind of describes to us, or not to us, but he describes in court how what actually happened and apparently Nikki was known to be pretty mouthy and you know if you told her to stop talking she was going to get louder and he had said she had been kind of in a bad state her dad had just died and she was just not really taking anything from anybody and for some reason that day she just kept going and going and going and eventually Rafael Castile had enough but I, I want people to kind of hear Randall's account of what happened. Um, this is from the trial. Again, this is very, very disturbing detail. So just, you know, viewer discretion here. If you don't want to listen to this, I would hit the fast forward button because what Randall's about to say is what happened to Nicole. He warned her about the stuff that she was saying. Was she being frustrated? Yes. Was she being rude? Yes. Okay. Was she being violent? No. He was He was telling her that uh, she needed to shut up and just be still for a while. Well, otherwise, she wouldn't like the result. I kept trying to get her. She kept on talking. She kept, she, even afterwards, she wouldn't stop. And I just, I continued to try to get her to quit because it looks like uh, he, he's uh, pretty much upset now. He grabbed some tape and started taping her hands up. I was pretty much, I was frozen. 
at first I thought it was a scare tactic. He gets a machete uh, and he goes over to Nikki and uh, he's looking down at her and he's speaking but I don't, I, I, I couldn't tell what he was saying because I, I, I really wasn't paying attention to him talking, I was just watching Nikki. And uh, at any point, at some point, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, uh, all right, uh, he's, he's going to pick it up after, I mean, put, put the machete back down after he picked it up. And uh, he raised it, and as soon as he raised it, I, I already knew what it was going to do, and I turned my head, and I, I heard it hit. That's the sound I won't ever forget. She was on the couch at first, then she on the floor. She uh, wasn't saying a word, but she was on her side. And uh, she kept moving around, lifting her, lifting her head up. She kept trying to look around. Uh, I, the only thing I could think of is she was trying to look for me. He went and grabbed a uh, a black uh, a black axe and he swung it and buried it in her skull. And what did the defendant do? Carried on as if it didn't happen, never happened. Jeez, I mean, wow. And it doesn't. End, I mean, just looking at your reaction, this is something he will never forget. I mean, I'm sure this moment plays in his head over and over and over again, maybe wishing like, I wish I would have grabbed the machete away from him. I wish when she was looking for me, I would have I would have pushed him away so he didn't end her life in this way. Now, just to give you an idea, Rafael Castillo, about 6'4", maybe close to 300 pounds. He was a very big guy while Randall maybe 5'8", five, 5'9", five, very skinny, lean man. So I could see why he may have just been like, I don't stand a chance. I mean, I don't know what's going through his head at this time. And for all I know, they could have just all used meth at before this. We don't know. That wasn't really discussed. But hearing him talk about that moment, you could still, it pains him. He now you know, claims he still has trouble sleeping now. Even afterwards, he lied to police at first saying, you know, he didn't know what happened or, and then he went back and he was like, I have nothing to live for. Nikki's gone. And he ended up going back to police and telling them the whole story because he was so scared of Rafael Castile that he was going to come back and get him because at the time Castile still wasn't arrested. I mean, absolutely. I think I'd be terrified, too, if I saw what had just happened in that moment, the way that this person was able to just easily, it seems like, do this to someone else. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be terrified. Absolutely. I'd be scared to go tell police, but that I'm, I'm glad he, he ended up making the right decision. It's just I, I can't imagine what that moment which must have been like. I mean, like you said, I mean, he probably didn't stand a chance to stop this person and just kind of probably turned away out of his own, I need to save myself right now. But at the same time, I'm just like, 
that has to be a regret of his. I mean, it has to be like, why, why didn't I just try and, and step in? Why didn't I try to try and, Hey, let me diffuse this situation. But then again, like you said, drugs are really bad. We know what meth does to people. It's going to change their, their thinking, their behaviors, their reaction times. That's yeah. I, that's scarring. Yeah. And he wasn't alone there. Like I said, there was two other witnesses to this. And one of them was Vanessa Vargas, who actually had just walked in when she noticed Nikki sitting there with her hands taped up and then Rafael attack her. Um, she took the stand as well. And she too, I was scared for my life. He threatened me and my son's life. So she has that over her as well. Um, but it didn't end there after this attack. Rafael Castillo then orders both Randall and Vanessa Vargas to clean up and dispose of Nikki's body. I can't imagine what that must have been like for them to try and and do that. Yeah, and Randall said something that kind of stays with me. He had to take the axe out of her head and close her eyes. And he said, I closed her eyes and I whispered goodbye to her. Having to first witness this horrific act and then told to clean up your loved one. No, I I mean, I like I had chills just like hearing that. I just... Clearly, he he cared about her. That's why he said goodbye to her. I think he probably was in an extreme state of shock in that moment and couldn't comprehend like what was happening around him. And that's probably like why whenever this trial was happening, he was still kind of in this state of shock. Like that's probably why he still can't sleep because of it. Because seeing something like that and then having to clean up after what had just happened to the the person you cared about, that is sure to mess with someone's head for the rest of their lives. Yeah, and a big part of this story and what got a lot of people's attention when we first read the affidavit um, when it when it happened was her hands were severed. And Randall talked about what he did with her hands. Uh, I had forgotten to... Uh put them in with the body, and so uh, I had nowhere else to put them, so I wrapped them in plastic and uh, put them in a a crock pot that was on top of that uh, uh, bookshelf. I I don't have words for that. That's in a crock pot? In a crock pot. And her her hands were never found. Um... So what ended up happening, they clean up, they put her body in a, in a, a blue like storage bin, a blue tote, and wrap it up. And then another man that they called Gizmo, who lived in the house, Vanessa's boyfriend, calls a friend. And a friend shows up because he had a vehicle. The friend doesn't even know why he's there other than he was told to come by and he, they needed him to dump some trash. Okay, words of advice. If someone calls you and says, I need you to dump trash for me, always say no. His name was, um, let me make sure I get this. His name was Stephen Cleveland. He also took the stand. He 
was also detained. He's behind bars, but he came out to testify. And Stephen Cleveland told he's like, I got this call from my friend. I went. They put something in my car. Everybody knows you can go throw trash at WW White Road. So that's where I went. I go back to the house and they're like, oh, we forgot to give you this. It was the crock pot. He said he saw the hands and he fled. And he went to his sister's house because he was so like, I re- he's like, I realized at that moment what I was told to get rid of. And he was actually the initial first initial person to call police. He called his lawyer because he was on probation and he told his lawyer, hey, this is what happened. I may have been part of something that I didn't know about. What do I do? So the next morning they called police and he told them what he had did. And um, the next day, I think, is when 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 Nikki was found um, off the south of this off the side of the road. But yeah, like you said, you never thought as you were dumping these bins. Obviously, Oscar Flores said they weren't light. They were heavy. I just words of advice. Do not dump someone else's trash. Always say no or look through it just so you know what it is, because you don't want to find yourself in this situation. And why are they going to ask you to throw away trash? That just doesn't make any sense. Um, So we know about the cleanup. I imagine if you are on methamphetamines, you're not doing a great job of that cleanup. The amount of evidence, I have yet to see so much evidence, physical evidence, rolled into a courtroom. Immediately when when police go search West Harlan Avenue, they immediately find the machete that's thrown on the ground. They immediately find the axe, the handle sticking out from under the bed. They find... Kitty litter, which apparently was used in the cleanup to disguise the smell. They find a trash can with a um, one of those disposable mop heads with blood on it, and paper towels with blood on it, a Fabuloso bottle, spray bottles, cleaning solutions. Like, there's just a huge amount of evidence left behind. And in those two bags that were left alongside Nikki's body was... Her shoes with her name on it. You know, there was more kitty litter. There was a box with the receipt from Domino's that had one of the uh, Gizmo's name on it and the address. Like, there was just so much left behind. And it just baffled me that Rafael Castillo thought he could get away with this. One, he didn't help with the cleanup. Apparently, he just left and went on with his life. And, you know, I think even both Randall and Vanessa said, like, he went on like nothing happened. Like, it was no big deal. He went inside the main house, and another witness in the main house who didn't actually witness the murder, but saw him right after, she sees blood on his shoes. She's like, what's that? Oh, he's like, it's just ketchup. Or it's, you know, and then he's like, no, it's, you know, it's something else. It's. It's not blood and like giggling and laughing like like it was no big deal what he had just did. So, yeah, what was what was his defense in all of this? What was his defense team's story with this? That none of these witnesses were credible. They were all drug users. And mind you, yes, some of their stories, details were a little different. They couldn't tell you who was where, who was how long they were there when they left, when they came back. But none of them faltered 
on the fact that it was Rafael Castillo who took a machete. They both knew the amount of times he swung it. Then he took an axe. And what she did on the ground, like those big details were all very consistent. So yeah, maybe they didn't have, they weren't very clear on a lot. Like I said, these are habitual drug users. I'm sure with the, you know, with the effects methamphetamine has, there's a lot of details. And some I'm sure they want to forget. Um, but yeah, the defense was like, these witnesses are not credible. Obviously, some of them were behind bars. Some of them may have been here. Some of them may have been there. But they could never really say that it wasn't him. And that defense obviously didn't work. Yeah, let's talk about, I mean, with as much evidence as they had, with as many witnesses as they were, it seemed like they drew a roadmap and the only possible person it was Rafael Castillo. How long did it actually take the jury to deliberate in this? It took maybe a little over an hour, around an hour, and they came back with that guilty verdict. And then we went into what's called the punishment phase, and we've explained this before. This is kind of the second half of the trial, so where the jury decides how long to sentence um, a person to jail. It's anywhere from 5 to 99 years of life in prison. That's what's the standard. It's the law. So in punishment phase, we kind of learn a little more about Raphael. We have a expert on gang prisons take the stand, and apparently Rafael Castillo may have been associated with the Mexican mafia. He had several tattoos they showed pictures of that shows affiliation with the Texas Mexican mafia. And this drug expert was like, "Mm, we have records of some of these tattoos and our databases of, of Texas gangs and of prison gangs. And yeah, he has been flagged. Some of these tattoos have been flagged before. So that didn't do very well. Um, and that was the only person the um, state put up. The defense, though, put up Castillo's sister and three family friends. And, you know, honestly, it almost, I felt so bad for her, the sister. Um, obviously, she loves her brother. Um, obviously, they didn't know this other lifestyle he left, he lived. And they were very Christian family. Like he grew up in a church. The other three friends had gone to the house to pray with him while he's on house arrest. Like they knew this family for over 20 years. They've known him as he's grown up. And they're like, he's always been really respectful. He's always, we don't know what happened and when he veered off or what. But, you know, at that point, they were just not, they were begging to not get a life sentence. And apparently it worked a little. So how long did they give him? I was almost a little surprised. I thought because of the extent of this crime and how horrific it was, he was going to get that life sentence. But they sentenced him to 70 years with eligibility parole in 30 years. So how old was he? I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but how old was he whenever this trial went on? He was like in he's in his late twenties, so it could be like in his early sixties, um, late fifties. Now, mind you, you're eligible for parole in thirty years does not mean you're going to get out. I'm cons- 
thinking with the extent of what this crime is, his affiliation with the Texas Mexican Mafia, he is not going to get uh, parole the first time around or the second time around. It could be a few times before he's actually a granted parole from parole board. Um, but yeah, it's still there, though. That is very surprising. And I, I don't know if he had past criminal history or anything like that, but even if this was his first crime, even if he had never gotten even a speeding ticket, the way he killed Nikki, I think that should speak to it. And you should give someone life. It, it just, I, I don't care how good his history was, how good he grew up, what a great person everyone who loved him thought he was. He chopped off a woman's hand and put an ax in her head for talking. That's it. I mean, that's not someone I would want out on the streets again. And I very much so believe in the, the, the system that we have to reform people and put them out in society after they've learned what they've done and won't do it again. But that doesn't sound like a person who's going to get reformed. Yeah, you'd think he had to. Like, he was like the extent of this crime, there had to be, I don't know if it was drug-induced. They didn't go over that during the trial, if he was on drugs at the time or not. Um but yeah, I just felt like that 70 years for me, if I was the jury member, after seeing and hearing um, everything that was, you know, displayed during this trial, I, I would, you know, just walking, it was awkward enough walking around the hallways with him, like pretty much beside me, you know, knowing that he did these things, I wouldn't be comfortable walking around him in everyday life. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That just, that's very shocking, the sentencing he got. Um, I don't know, did Nikki's family speak at all during this? One of, um, her sister did testify um, toward the beginning of this trial just to kind of give the jury an idea who she was and, you know, kind of how her life changed. She was also a mother. They were not there for any of the trial, though, besides that testimony. So we don't know how they took this sentencing. The, a letter was read during after the sentencing um, by the um, victim advocate um, from the family about kind of how they felt about this and how her, her children will never have her in her life. And she was never given the chance to clean herself up to be a part of her children's life again. And that that's what they took and how nobody deserved to die that way. Um, and I don't blame them. I don't think a family member should have to sit and see and hear what went on in that courtroom. Absolutely not. I don't think I'd be able to sit through that if something like that had happened to my loved one either. You kind of want them to still have the image of who she was and not how she left. And... Um, like I said at the top, this is one that I will never forget after sitting through this um, trial. And whew, it was it was a long week. Yeah, I mean, probably a jam-packed week, too. You're getting a lot of information thrown at you at one time and a lot of very gruesome and graphic information. Yeah, and I thought that's why it was important to do an episode on this trial because I'm only limited to so much to say on an on-air piece or on a web article, where here we could flush out kind of what happened, who Nikki was, who all the players were, who was all involved, how this kind of all got dealt with. And 
I would like to just say that in some sense, justice was served for Nikki. In some sense, definitely. I mean, even if her boyfriend didn't go right away, I mean, hats off to him for at least going to police once he had the time to process more and and say something so that it wasn't a mystery of what happened to her. And, you know, and also to the to the guy who picked up the garbage who shouldn't have and dropped it off. Hats off to him for also saying something. I think that's what I've just learned throughout this is the biggest takeaway is you should say something. People deserve to have their voice. And if they have that voice taken away, someone needs to be that voice for them. Thank you for joining us for South Texas Crime Stories. Next week, we'll have a new episode about a missing grandmother. 